Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. I am your host, Jensen Beeler from Asphalt and Rubber, and with me today is the voice of the World Superbike Championship, Mr. Stephen English. One of the voices, at least, Jensen. And good to have you back in the Paddock Pass podcast. I know, it's been a while. Uh, good to be back indeed. Yeah, it's a sunny day here in Laguna Seca for you and I, Steve. And we're going to talk a little bit of... Um, we're going to talk a little bit of World Superbike action, get a break away from the, the MotoGP stuff that we normally cover on the show. Yeah, it's pretty much ideal weather conditions here, Jensen. This hasn't been an ideal start to the season, though, but we've got plenty no, to talk about. No, yeah, it gives us good good fodder for a conversation. Um, why don't we just start at the beginning? Let's start before this even, the season even got underway, because uh, I think there was a lot of talk going into this year's championship about... Uh, the performance balancing that we're going to see in the rules and um, hopefully that shaking up the standings and the winners lists and maybe that didn't work out so much but it still had an interesting effect on it how, how have you seen it steve well i think one of the interesting things about the balancing that we've seen isn't so much that jonathan ray's had his wings clipped or anything like that the biggest thing has been that in the midfield teams can get a lot closer to the front and that's actually been for me that was the real benefit of the regulations and we've seen that this year with the likes of Xavi Fares finishing on the podium three times, Taprock Razgadioglu's finished on the podium as well and that wouldn't have happened in the past but it's happening now because the likes of Barney Ducati, the Pichetti, the Aralek Kawasaki teams, they can have the exact same spec as the factory bikes. So suddenly instead of having to go out and spend a lot of money to try and develop your own engines and uh, try and just get the bikes ready, you can just go and buy the parts directly from Kawasaki, Ducati, Yamaha, Honda and go out and run with the same spec as the front runners and then it's just up to you to find the right team to be able to put a rider on the grid and uh, actually be competitive and that has worked through this season we saw it at the start of the year where Fares had three podiums in the first three rounds and uh, we definitely didn't see anything like that in the past for a privateer team yeah it's been interesting to see the the effects i think everyone was hoping that it was gonna knock uh, riders like jonathan ray down a peg but um yeah it definitely is having a positive, I would say, uh, reaction inside the paddock. I mean, what's your take? Yeah, I think, as I said, in that midfield, it's made a big difference. At the front of the field, the biggest problem is every time that there has been a regulation change, it's probably played into Jonathan's favour because it's taken away some of the advantages that his rivals would have had. Jonathan and Pereira are able to adapt really well to any changing of circumstances. So with the engine rev changes, so Kawasaki lost, I think it was about 1,100 revs for this year. It really hurt Tom Sykes. And Jonathan was able just to really make his style work with that rev limit. It cost Ducati quite a bit at the start of the season. Jonathan was able to win races at the start of the season. And really, that's what we've seen is just that adaptability that Kawasaki have that uh, Jonathan's able to make it work, whereas other riders probably losing a little bit more. You, you call it adaptability. I look at it from almost a, a money perspective or a budget perspective because Kawasaki is, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in the paddock. So I think... At least from my perspective, that they're the team that has the resources and the ability to adapt the quickest and, and to pick up on the changes and and to to go forward as quickly as possible from a rule change or whatever circumstance that the seems to be thrown their way. Whereas other teams are going to have to take a couple rounds longer or, or half a season or whatever that that time frame is. Yeah, like I'm always always been a firm believer that when people talk about budget cuts or anything like that, budget caps, I've always thought if you can raise ten million dollars you should be able to spend 10 million dollars you shouldn't be limited on what you can do kawasaki can raise more money here than any other manufacturer any other team so they should be able to spend this they go out and they spend that on the best engineers the best mechanics whatever it is 
and they spend it on developing their bike. They don't have to have a parallel project to a MotoGP project like Ducati do. So they're able to put all their resources into this. And if this is all their eggs in the World Superbikes basket, they're going to have that success. And, and I think that if you're putting in that kind of resources, you should have that success. It is a case of if you're able to close the gap between the front and the midfield, it can help us have better racing. But at the end of the day, if you're spending a lot more than any, anyone else, you're going to have better results. And when you say a lot more, you know, you keep it in perspective. If you put this into MotoGP uh, kind of frame of mind in terms of price, it's still a relatively affordable proposition for, for all these manufacturers. Yeah, it's like anything else. It's uh, the budgets that go into any championship just are dependent on what you get out of it and also just where you can find that performance. And I think there was a good stat about some of the budgets that are being spent in different sports. And uh, I, I read... Uh, this morning someone sent on a link to me just saying that uh, Movie Star for Cycling spent twice as much as they spend on MotoGP for title sponsorship of the Yamaha team. So it just goes into MotoGP can be small eggs as well compared to other sports and uh, then obviously if you're comparing here to MotoGP you only have to look out and big crowds here are 50-60,000 for a weekend whereas a MotoGP they'll have that on a race day so it's, it's all about trying to work within the constraints of what you have. Kawasaki they're willing to spend that money. That's why Jonathan Ray is the highest paid rider. That's why crew chiefs are getting better money in Kawasaki than in other teams. And they're just willing to, to spend it. Ducati's the interesting one because they've put resources into this championship over the last few years. But uh, now that Ernesto Marinelli's left, it's going to be interesting to see whether Gigi Delini has still got as much emphasis on the Superbike program as there was when Ernie was in. Yeah, yeah it'll certainly be interesting. I was just down in the um, Ducati pit uh, over the last session and I was looking at their bike and I'm not quite sure if there's any parts on that bike that come from the, the production Panigale and to see how much development and time and energy just I was just looking at the swing arm in particular it has this extra bracing that they've added to make it more rigid and um, you know that, that takes time that takes money, that takes a lot of development so if there's a disparity gap between the production bike and the race bike that's R&D time, that's resources that's stuff that's going to get pulled away from other series or championships this is definitely a, a balancing act that has to be played there yeah and it's going to get worse as this year progresses when ducati's out of championship contention unless jonathan ray hits some problems they're out of the title race are they going to continue developing that bike to be able to keep winning races this year does the development shift on to the v4 project you know i was talking to the team manager yesterday about it and he said right now it's 50 50 split but you could see very quickly that becomes zero to 100. 50-50 current bike versus the Panigale yeah. V4. Yeah, and then you can imagine very quickly that shifts on just working solely on the V4 because that's what they're going to have to do. Ducati in the past has always struggled with a new bike. If you think back to the 1098, really struggled initially to win races, took a while to win a championship. The Panigale took a couple of years to win a race. It's only Chaz Davis that's really been able to be a consistent winner on it and they still haven't won a championship with it. So Ducati are going to need to make sure that they develop it well right now so that by the time we start next season that they're actually ready for it because next year will also be the first time where Ducati that's how you know this is full factor and you got the uh, the live radio and uh, for Ducati they'll need to just look in terms of trying to change that development focus on the V4 because in the past they always used the stock thousand class to be able to develop their next model bike they haven't done that this year next year the first time we're going to see a Ducati V4 in the world SBK paddock is going to be on a world SBK grid at Phillip Island. Yeah, it's been an interesting development path because, like you said, Ducati has always kind of taken a year of development in a superstar class in the National Series to develop the platform and then bring it to World Superbike. We don't see it in World Superstock this year, 
We have seen it racing in Italy, but it's kind of hard to do um, a true apples to apples because they're racing with the 1100 engine rather than a thousand. How comparable are those results when you have a 10% advantage in displacement? Uh, it's tough to say. But uh, I'll be very curious to see what that bike looks like. It, it sounds like from, from what people have been telling me, we will see the production version of that start being teased later this summer and about the next month or so. Um, we've seen some spy photos and some track photos of the, the race bike, but that's always hard to kind of tell where the development is, is headed. Yeah, and I think for Ducati, in terms of Ducati Corsa, they've said that they're not going to test the bike until November with the World SBK team. Now, maybe there's going to be like a secret test that goes on at Magello or something like that, but there'll be no major test for the likes of Chaz Davis or whoever they'll have riding for them next year. So that's going to be another interesting side of it because we'll turn up at the November test at Hareth. And that could be the first time that they roll down pit lane. That seems really late to me. That seems like a really bad idea. I don't know. Well, it'll time, I mean, the people time, time the in the pudding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I definitely think I, I definitely think I'm surprised at how long it's taken for the lead time to come on this because they had initially said that they'd have a, a run on that V4 mid-season and that keeps getting pushed back. That's what's interesting about it. Right. What Ducati really need for next year is they need to have a couple more Ducatis on the grid because they need more and more data points to be able to compare because the biggest issue for Ducati is, and we saw it this year already, Donington Park is the best example of this. Chaz Davis had a crash five minutes into the opening uh, dry weather practice session. It was free practice three. We had two wet sessions to start the weekend. He crashes after five minutes. Suddenly Ducati are on the back foot for the whole weekend. Javi Fares has an unrideable bike for race one and race two. Michael Rubin Rinaldi took a long time to get himself up to speed. Marco Melandri was struggling and it all came down to the fact that they couldn't compare to Chaz's info, Chaz's data. They couldn't use his electronic settings and it put them all the way back. They need more riders on their bikes and they need more riders at the front on their bikes. Absolutely, absolutely. It, it, it's a it's an issue that we see in all forms of racing where, um, if you don't have that that pool of data, you know, to make another GP comparison, right? Looking at how the latest trend seems to be to have satellite teams that are closer to the factory bikes, so there's quicker development and more ability to test parts and do R and D with more riders and get a bigger base of input from more riders rather than these super focused machines that we've seen in the past. And I think Superbikes got to start doing the same thing. If you only have a Chaz Davies that can ride your Ducati, you don't really have a team. You know, you, you kind of have to take a page from the Chicago Bulls. You need to have a team of five players. You can't have a team of one. Um, yeah, with one superstar, it makes it a bit, bit yeah, easier. I mean, it makes it a bit easier, <laughs> but it's one of those things where... You, there's no I in team, right, Steve? So you, 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 have to, you can't just build everything around one person or one rider or, or one setup that works. You need to have a bigger, wider base so a multitude of riders can do well. So when a Chaz Davies has a bad weekend, you have a Marco Melander that can step or, or whomever that ends up being. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about it is I was chatting to one of the journalists here yesterday about it, and he was making a comparison to when Max Biaggi came to World SBK or when Carlos Checa came to World SBK. They took the approach that any time that something was affecting the bike was a big problem. It didn't matter if that was only affecting it for a couple of thousands of a second per lap. That was a couple of thousands of a second that he didn't have confidence in the bike. And Biaggi would focus on those couple of thousands almost to the same degree as he'd focus to the couple of tenths of a second that were affecting things. And every problem mattered. And every every time he went out on track, he had to find the solution. And that was what he was trying to do. And Chaz Davis takes a similar approach to that coming from a 125, 250 Grand Prix background, every time Chaz goes out, if you look at him on a Friday session, he'll always be down the order on Friday. He'll he'll get through to Super Bowl 2 more often than not, obviously enough, but he'll always be down the order 
but once it comes to race day he's always able to find what he needs and that's because he'll spend a lot of the weekend trying to work on just different sections of the track or different parts with the bike and then put it all together when it matters not many riders can do that and we've seen with Ducati that uh, the likes of Fares maybe Rinaldi will have that talent in the future but he doesn't have it right now Melandri struggled to get a feel with the bike so it all falls onto Davis's shoulders and that's where Ducati's held back Kawasaki on the other hand they've got Jonathan Ray with so much confidence that it's nice and easy for him alright Steve if you had to ask me before the season started who to look for who to watch easy answer is Jonathan Ray Chaz Davies that was that was the title contention from last year. We were hoping it would carry over into the 2018 season. Maybe the rules kind of make it in a, a more interesting battle. And then what happened? What happened was <laughs> everything happened. We saw that, uh, as usual, Jonathan Ray, Pararibu, Kawasaki are able to maximize what they can do. Now, they've dropped points this year. They have had their issues, whether it's at Brno where Jonathan had a crash, whether there's been couple of issues technically i think in thailand there was a break issue for jonathan so there have been issues for them but they've been able to get the most they could from that package pretty much the whole season ducati haven't been able to do that Chaz davis we know what davis can do i think a couple of years ago he rolled off seven wins in the last eight races things like that he's always been a race winner he's won over 30 times in world sbk same for tom sykes but for Chaz Davis, this year just hasn't quite clicked. It started quite strong, but uh, just for Davis, he's just had, uh, whether it was the crash in Phillip Island, that was lost points. That's where he came out of the pits. If you think back to Phillip Island, that's where we had pit stops in race two. Chaz Davis came out of the pits and he absolutely gunned it. First time in his life, he said that he ever came out of pit lane and was straight up to racing speed. He crashed halfway around that lap and that cost him a lot of points. That Anytime you give up points to Jonathan Ray, you're then chasing them back for the rest of the season. And uh, for Ducati, once we got to Imola, Donington, Brno, it's just been one one hit after the other. So Jazz has just lost a lot of points over the course of those few rounds. He finds himself, you know, we're at Laguna Seca, he finds himself over 60 points behind at the halfway stage of the season. You're not making up 60 points in Jonathan Ray unless Ray hits a lot of trouble. Right. I think when you give up a certain amount of points too, you're giving Jonathan Ray the ability to manage the championship from the leading position so he can start or i should say stop taking chances start fighting for podiums instead of wins and picking his battles more carefully yeah the one thing about jonathan is when you talk to him after a race weekend you say how was the race weekend for you jonathan he doesn't say oh it was great to win in race one but you know finishing on the podium in race two wasn't good he'll say I came here with a 60-point championship lead. I've left here with a 61-point championship lead. It's been a good weekend. As long as he extends his championship lead over both races, that's how he judges his race weekends. I think for a lot of other riders, where they can't manage the situation like Ray can because they don't have the bike underneath them. But for Jonathan, it's about managing that and always just keeping an eye on what you can do over the, the 50 points that are available any given weekend. And for Ray... Nine times out of ten, he comes away with 36 or 40 points from each weekend. So he's always able to manage that. And it puts so much pressure on everyone else to avoid making a big mistake. If you have a crash, you know Jonathan's unlikely to have too many crashes through the season. And you're always just playing catch-up. Yeah. Uh, is it too early to start stamping his name on the championship trophy, calling him Mr. Superbike? I'm sitting here in a Dorna shirt, so obviously I can't say it's too uh, early. So, but I, I think like, at the end of the day... Jonathan's not giving up points like that. It's a fight for second unless he hits a lot of problems in the second half of the season. And uh, that's what's going to be the big issue for all of these riders is just that now you are in that fight for second. You're trying to win races. And uh, 
you're not going to put too much pressure on Ray in terms of that championship, but you're just trying to put pressure on out on track and try and uh, have some battles with him, win some races. That's what Davis needs to focus on because for a lot of these riders, they're still focusing on trying to get a contract for next year as well. Jonathan's got his contract sorted in another two years with Kawasaki, but apart from him, I think it's only top rack rides Gary Ogley that's actually got a contract sorted for next year. Everyone else is trying to put themselves in the best position to be on the best bike for next season. Where do you see Chaz Davies next season? Well, the big thing is, I said it a couple of months ago, that uh, the only two riders with leverage in the rider market coming into this season is Chaz Davis and Jonathan Ray because they've done all the winning for the last three years. But they only have leverage as long as there's seats available. There's only two seats that are winning races, a Ducati and a Kawasaki. Jonathan signs on for Kawasaki, so immediately a lot of Chaz Davis's leverage is gone. Do you want to keep winning races? You stay at Ducati. It's unlikely Kawasaki are going to hire, for one thing, two British riders again and for another thing Chaz and Johnny now if they did they'd probably win pretty much every race through the season but it's that question of whether or not that they would actually take on that risk um, I think for Chaz his leverage has gone to try and find a new seat so he has to make a deal with, with Ducati his leverage with Ducati could also be lessened because he suddenly doesn't have the option of going anywhere else so he might have to just take a lower offer then he'd probably feel like he deserves, but that's because Ducati are able to sort of lowball him now because he's only won twice so far this season. They can sort of maybe make a, a bit of a claim to say that uh, we paid you well last time and now they're trying to just take that back. Chaz is, as I said, the only other rider that has been able to take the fight to Jonathan over the last few years. He's a valuable commodity, but you need to be winning races to get that value. How much value do you place on Ducati moving to that V4 platform for next year? Do you see that as... That's a positive. I'm Chaz Davies. I want to make sure I'm on that V4 next year, or I'm a I'm a different rider. I want to jump ship and make sure I'm on that bike. Or is that going to be one of those kind of tar pits for a season where uh, we're developing this machine and I'm not going to have results for another season? Well, I know whenever we were down at the November test, or maybe it was the January test at Jerez, Lorenzo Zanetti was out on the V4, and everyone came in and said that bike's a rocket ship down the back straight. Every rider wants a rocket ship. Fair enough. Was it the eleven hundred or the thousand? That was the full race spec one, so it was the thousand. So it's already done some some track mileage, yeah. and everyone raved about how impressive it was coming onto that back straight. So I think I think if you're a rider, you want to make sure Ducati generally always produces a good superbike. You want to make sure you're on that bike because the other options for someone like Chaz Davis are: Do you go to a Yamaha? Do you go to a Honda? Do you go to BMW? BMW could be an interesting one. Of course, he's raced and, and won on BMWs in the past and wore less BK. But do you want to take that risk? That's a much bigger risk than staying at Ducati. Sure, sure. Uh, looking at the rest of the field, we've got... Um, <laughs> I've got down on my notes here, pretenders and contenders. Uh, looking at riders like Marco Melandri, Tom Sykes, um, the Yamaha riders, Alex Lowe's, Michael Vandermark. We've definitely seen them take a step up but we've also kind of seen especially in the case of Melandry and Sykes kind of take a step back I was actually really surprised to see the results so far this season for for Melandry and Sykes and just they're not where I thought they were going to be I thought they were going to be in there mixing it up and they're not Uh, looking at Melandry in particular comes out out of the gate swinging to the point where I'm thinking championship contender maybe 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 this is this is a good move on Ducati Corsa especially for the price they're paying and then fizzle yeah and i think that's in fairness pretender is not the wrong word to use to describe the likes of melandry sykes and javi fares because the season started so strongly for them 
Melandri's only won those races in Phillip Island. I think apart from that, he's only had another couple of podiums. And then for Tom Sykes, he's won one race. But uh, one race victory on that Kawasaki isn't nearly enough. And that's the problem for the likes of, of Sykes. Xavi Fares started the year three podiums since crashing out of the lead at Aragon or crashing out of fighting for the lead in Aragon. He hasn't done anything. So those three riders, really, if you were to say after Aragon that they'd be where they are in the championship now, you would have been very surprised by that. If you had said after the first couple of rounds that Yamaha would have won three races out of four um, at Donington and Brno, I think a lot of people would have thought, I don't really see that happening. But that's exactly how it's all transpired. Yamaha's made a big step forward. They've done a lot to get more and more out of their package. They're, they've got two of the best young riders that have come through World Superbikes over the last few years. I think if you look at since 2014 and you were to go around and you were to ask people like which of the young riders do you, would you want to have in your bike over the next few years that's when Michael Vandermark was winning the Supersport World Championship Alex Lowe's was as a, a rookie in the Superbike class and they would have been the two riders everyone would have picked so they're, they're not really fulfilling the potential that they have Yamaha needs to just make another step forward but it's not a big step forward they need to make and they'll be there thereabouts for the rest of the season and that becomes then a key seat for next year where suddenly a lot of people are going to want to be on a Yamaha next year that wasn't the case over the last few years yeah yeah it's interesting to see the progress that they've made we definitely I think the championship needs to have that third manufacturer that's that's on the same level but you know Steve we talk a lot in racing those final tenths those are the most expensive tenths to to buy, so to speak, it will cost you millions, whereas the tents before those maybe cost you thousands. So I look at Yamaha's progress. I mean, it's a diminishing return and getting to that Ducati level or getting to that Kawasaki level, that's going to be a massive undertaking. Do you think the team has the resources and the ability to get there? They're getting more and more support from Japan and we've got the Suzuki 8 hours coming up as well. That's obviously going to be a big draw for Japan. If they can go to Suzuka and win again with Vandermark and Lowe's on the bike, suddenly more resources become available for the Superbike program. And, and I definitely I do agree with you, Jensen, that like it's easy to find a second. It's very difficult to find a half-tenth of a second. And it's a bit like when uh, when you owe the bank $1,000, that's your problem to find that money. But if you owe the bank $100 million, it's the bank's problem to try and find that money. And it becomes harder and harder to find the solution to that. Yamaha, Aprilia, whoever it is, they always find that it's easy to make that lot of progress to get themselves to be competitive but then to make that final step just becomes more and more difficult. And that's where Yamaha are this year. Because if you look at last year, they made huge strides. And they went to a lot of races in the second half of the year, feeling that they could be podium contenders. And then for this year, they've been able to really fulfill that potential, win some races. But the interesting rounds for them are Imola and here at Laguna Seca, because these are two of the most challenging circuits on the calendar for the OR1. They made a step forward in Imola. And now they need to make a step forward at Laguna. If they're able to come away from Laguna with, you know, top five finishes, they've done a really good job of developing that bike. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the Aprilia because that, for me, is always the team that I feel is just on the cusp. This could be their year. This could be their year. And it never really seems to materialize. And I'm just looking at the standings now. And Eugene's down in 13th. Um, Salvadori's 9th. That's not where I expected to see them. And that's not where that package was just a few years ago. Yeah, one of the biggest issues for Aprilia was when that package was at the front when Eugene was winning races on it in 2013, the engine was placed in a different spot, the weight distribution was different, it taken them a long time to get it back to being where they need it to be in terms of what that bike feels like. Uh, in terms of one of the biggest things that's actually helped them is the engine changes and the regulation changes for this year cost them a lot of top-end power. 
but they were able to find their power delivery a lot better in the in the middle of their engine range, the middle of their rev range, and that's been a lot smoother than for the corner exits. And that's actually allowed them to have a lot more confidence in the bike. But now they're trying to just find those final tenths, and that's whenever it's going to start getting more and more of a struggle. But the last few rounds, we have seen Aprilia show at least some signs of progress, whether it's with Savadori or Laverty. They've both been able to have decent results, and uh, Donington and Bruno were actually about as strong as we've seen from that team. But the team also know they need to make a big step forward. This is year three for the SMR Milwaukee team being in World SBK, and they haven't delivered on any of the potential that people thought that they had. And uh, I think Sean Muir said it best whenever he said we need to turn potential into results, otherwise sponsors, they're not going to come to to support us for next year. And that's the key thing for them is to make sure that they're able to be on the grid next year. What bike they'll have, that becomes another story as well. Sure. Yeah, I think it's interesting what you were saying about the uh, the engine placement in the chassis because I was just talking to an Aprilia racing person the other day and they were saying, why do we go through such effort to make the production bike have the adjustment in the chassis to place the engine you know, back and forward and up and down and inside the chassis if we're not allowed to use it on the racetrack. It goes against the whole purpose of it. And it was the same thing when that bike originally came out. They had the uh, gear-driven cam kit, and that eventually got taken away. And it's been an interesting... There's always an interesting balance of performance in Superbike, but sometimes it doesn't help the lower the lower class uh, riders or teams. I think there were times in the past where a blind eye would be turned, and it could be where... You know, for one manufacturer, they might say, like, oh, having fly-by-wire might make a big difference for us. And suddenly they're allowed to fly-by-wire. And sometimes you do need to have that bit of flexibility in regulations just because at the end of the day, everyone's here to show that what their bike can do to sell more bikes. It's not like in MotoGP where it's a prototype class and it's up to you to develop a whole new bike to be able to be competitive. Here, you're taking a road-going bike and trying to develop it. Now, these bikes, when you, as you said earlier on, Jetson, about the Ducati, when you go down to pit lane... It's not a road-going bike at all, but it does have their, their 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 derivative from that. But you need to have something where at least the teams are allowed to be competitive. And I think they've done a better job of finding that balance over the last few years, but there's still work to be done to be able to allow everyone to be able to get the most from their packages. Steve, looking at the season so far, what riders have kind of had a standout performance for you that have surprised you? I think Javi Fares at the start of the year surprised everyone, yeah. being able to be a podium contender. He's always good at Phillip Island, but to be able to be on the podium at uh, Aragon and Thailand as well really did show that he'd made a big step forward. But since then, it's all petered out for him, and uh, he's definitely going to be a man under pressure to keep his ride for next year. He came close to losing his ride already for this year. Last winter, it looked like Michael Rubin and Rinaldi was going to take his ride, and the uh, Barney managed to keep Fares and Rinaldi does all the European rounds as a Ducati junior rider. But uh, Fares, he'll need to really find that form from the start of the season if he wants to keep his ride for next year. Um, same with Marco Melandri, the start of the season really strong, but it's all gone a little bit uh, pear-shaped since then. But at least we saw in Brno, he was really fast in race two. Probably would have won the race if he hadn't have ran off the track. So maybe he's starting to show some signs of life again and be able to get himself competitive. The Yamaha riders being able to see Vandermark win twice. Lowe's has picked up a race victory. Vandermark could have won in Aston as well. And when you talk to a lot of ex-riders or a lot of people up and down the pit lane, they've all said that... Uh, Maybe just that little bit of inexperience of getting to the front held him back at uh, that Aston round from winning the race. But uh, now that he's won a race, you'd imagine he'll be able to kick on from that. Hmm. Let's talk about a, a tale of two Hondas and a tale of two Americans. Uh, with Jake Gagne and 
uh, PJ Jacobson. Um, not a great season for either of them, but I think with the expectations in mind and the resources at hand, definitely a different season for the both of them. I think I think Jake's been a little bit of a disappointment, if I can be honest as an American. And, and PJ, I think, is about where I expected him to be on a on a satellite effort Honda. Yeah, for PJ, of course, he started the season with the McNetty Morelli ECU, different to the Red Bull Hondas. And uh, he's had some good results. If you think back to Thailand in race two, he was in the top 10. He was quite strong. But he hasn't really had that step forward since then. But it's a, it's a, it's a struggle for any rookie. But it's also a struggle for a new team to learn how to develop a superbike, how to set up a superbike, and how to work through a superbike race weekend. So for the Triple M team, they've had to do a lot of learning. It's a good team. I'd, I'd be very surprised if PJ is not on the bike next year, particularly if he goes to Suzuka and has a good result for Honda. I, I imagine he'll keep that right. Jake, on the other hand, that's going to be a big question mark. I know that uh, last year Red Bull really wanted to have an American on the bike and uh, they pushed a lot for Jake to get that right. He hasn't lived up to the hopes that a lot of people had, but I think it's also easy to forget how little experience Gagne has. He's really never ridden a superbike before this time last year whenever he stepped in to replace Nicky Hayden. And uh, his Moto America experience was on effectively a stock bike. He had to learn electronics, he had to learn new tires, he had to learn new tracks, he had to learn how to travel from the US over to Europe, around the world. All those kind of things all add up. And he really needs to kick on in the second half of the year. Here at Laguna Seca, really important for him to have a good result. And a good result for him this weekend is to qualify for Super Bowl 2 and just score a decent helping of points. If he can do that, he shows that there is some potential there to have good results because everyone knows that the talent is there. He's a kid that uh, whenever he was racing in AMA motocross in the 450, he was a I think he scored points in a 450 race a couple of years ago. So he can be quick on the dirt, he can be quick on the road. And uh, he just needs to show what he can do in terms of on a world SBK bike. I think the changes that they've had from ECUs and everything has been one thing after the other has just been a little bit of an issue for him to try and get his head around. But I know whenever the biggest problem for any rider, whenever they come from a bike like what Gagne rode to riding a world SBK bike is every time he comes back into the pits and he talks to his crew chief, he'll probably say, that's the best bike I've ever ridden. What can we, what can we improve on it? Ah, nothing. That's better than anything I've ridden around Laguna before. That's any better than anything I've ridden around this track before. And that's what the challenge is. It's trying to pick up all those little data sets that you get with experience, but it takes five years to get five years experience. Gagne is trying to push all that into one year. And that's where a lot of the challenge comes from for him. What riders do you see contending for that seat in Honda? I think if I was if I was managing the team, one rider I'd definitely be interested in is Sandro Cortese. He's leading the Supersport World Championship. He's been Red Bull back throughout his career. He's German. He's fast. He's a world champion already in the Moto3 class. If he can add a Supersport World Championship, he becomes very attractive to a team. And you'd imagine very attractive to that uh, German-speaking Red Bull target audience as well. So that could really be one of the key factors. And right now, he'd be my favorite for that seat. Yeah, I think that's a good pick. But you could also have a couple of wild cards being thrown into that. Eugene Laverty, he's going to be available at the end of this season. If Tom Sykes leaves Kawasaki, he's going to look to get himself involved in a new project. Could he be a rider on that Honda? The Honda could suit him more than the rides he's been linked with he's been linked with the Yamaha of course he has ridden the Yamaha in the past but is his riding style going to suit a modern day Yamaha or one it's one of the big questions and it's an interesting thing to bring up because is Honda ready for a rider like Tom Sykes is the program at a point where they can bring in a, a championship winning rider a race winning rider 
and the package is commensurate with that level, or is there are they still needing to take another step in their development? Because when when you say Yamaha, I'm like, well, that makes sense. Yamaha's at that cusp. They're they're a solid top five team. They're going to go out every week weekend, maybe fight for a podium, but definitely be in that top five hunt. And if the stars align, they get their race wins. I don't see that with Honda, unless well, unless a tornado comes in, you know, on a race day. I just don't see it happening. The one thing to say about that is though. Leon Camier is arguably at that same level. That's fair. You know, you're waiting to see it. Like Leon Camier hasn't won a race, but he's also when, been on an MV. Yeah, exactly. Uh, when Leon wins a race, no one's going to be the least bit surprised. Yeah, that's fair. And uh, you do think that if Leon was on a Kawasaki at the minute, or if he was on a Ducati, he'd be winning races, challenging for championships. So they do already have a top line rider on that bike. Camier, before his crash in Aragon was fighting at the front in Phillip Island and in Thailand. And now we're going to start to see what he can do as he gets closer and closer to full fitness because it took a lot out of him, that crash, and it's taken him a long time to recover from it. So maybe we really haven't seen Honda's true potential this season so far. And I think particularly because we, we missed a couple of tracks that would have suited Camier and that bike, whether it was Aragon, I think... Um, talking to the team they felt that Aragon was a good opportunity Aston in particular was one that they thought was a missed opportunity just because Jake Anya had a crash as well in uh, Super Bowl that weekend missed both races so suddenly we didn't really get to see the potential of that Honda for a couple of tracks that would have suited them and then that's where Laguna Mizano and really become important to show what the potential of that bike is interesting you brought up Leon Camion because I wanted to talk to you about how much injuries have affected this season because it's been a huge component to the results and what and who we've seen on the podiums on, on the race weekends yeah injuries have definitely played a key role and it's been disappointing to see the likes of Camier on the sidelines we also saw Eugene Laverty have a pretty serious crash in Thailand as well and he missed out on two of his best tracks of the year as well he always goes well at Aragon if you think back to his rookie year in MotoGP the I think the first time that he actually out qualified and out raced Nicky Hayden was at Aragon and ever since then it's always been one track that he's always gone well at so it would have been interesting to see what the Aprilia could have done at a circuit like that suddenly Laverty's been recovering from his injuries this weekend at Laguna he says it's the first time he feels really like he's back to full fitness so that's where from this this point on we get to see what he can do but uh, Aprilia showed some flashes if you think back to australia laverty crashed out of the lead in race yeah. two yeah. salvadori was second fastest on friday before he had a big crash in super pole knocked him out for the weekend so it's all sort of been rolls of the dice that ran against the team and uh, obviously that can happen it's bike racing this is a dangerous sport you can have a crash you can have an injury at any given time but it's been unlucky for the team that it's happened at those junctures where they really had the potential to get something because if they had picked up a couple of podiums at the start of the year you're not looking back in on the opening half of the season for milwaukee and thinking oh they've had potential they would have had results and suddenly for next year the aprilia package becomes more attractive for them to stay on they're more attractive to sponsors for next year they might get more support from italy all those things sort of roll into it as opposed to looking at it and saying oh they've had a couple of top five finishes this year it's not quite doing it so there is always that little element of luck that plays its hand in racing and uh, gets you the results and it's the same for honda missing leon camier for those couple of rounds really hurt them a lot because he was the benchmark for them he was the rider that you compare Gagne and, and jacobson to he's the rider that you take the feedback from to develop the bike because from the first time that leon jumped on that bike he actually said it felt really good some issues with it like everyone else that's ridden the honda but he's been able to iron them out and really feel confident with the bike right from the start of the season so if he hadn't had his injuries, maybe we would have seen that on the podium already. Hmm. Talk to me about Jordi Torres. 
and and Envy Augusta because because I was always impressed uh, in the past few seasons watching Leon Camier and and Envy Augusta and seeing the results that they could put up on the board on what is arguably probably the oldest bike in the paddock um, and had definitely kind of plateaued in terms of its development and uh, this year it seems to been a step back for Jordy and, and, and for the team and how much of that is kind of the resources being sucked out of that program because I know Envy Augusta is looking at their superbike program and uh, it has maybe a maximum of one or two years left in it before they won't even have a platform to race with um, as they're changing their their the production side of their of their lineup um, yeah I'd be curious to hear your thoughts yeah the one thing for MV that's positive is over the last two years they've moved further and further away from the factory effort so the Reporto Corsa team, while they're an MV team, they're allowed to use parts from other man- from other non-partners with MV. So it could be suspension, it could be anything like that. And that's allowed them to make a lot of progress. They've had top 10 finishes for most of the season with Torres. I think he's had 7 or 8 already this season. So he's had good results. But Torres isn't a Leon Camier. And I think that's the key thing where... When you when you look at how Torres rides a bike, when you look at how Camier rides a bike, it's very different. Uh, Torres always relies a lot on the electronics. Camier does his best to minimise the electronics. So that also plays a role in how they develop a bike. Camier's always been pretty well regarded for his approach to developing a bike, his intelligence. Torres has always been a rider that when the bike is good, he's going to be able just to absolutely tear it up. But it's trying to get it into that right window. And uh, Torres has had some some good results, but. I think you're seeing the big difference between a Leon Camier and a Jordi Torres, the difference between one of the real top riders and one of the very good riders in, in the world SBK paddock. Hmm. I think um, I think we're going to s- see that team kind of fade away as as the the seasons go on. Um, looking ahead, let's talk a little silly season, a little a little gossip, if you will. Um, what, what, what do you hear on the street on who's going where? Like, give me give me a scoop here. Come on. Well, the big the big thing is Jonathan Ray has been confirmed to Kawasaki. Right. So who right. is Jonathan Ray's teammate for next year? I, I'll I'll give you fifty dollars if it's Tom Sykes next year, Jensen. Right. Really? Yeah. I I just see all the things that Tom's saying. He doesn't sound like a man that's staying within that team. Who's looking to maybe build bridges across yeah. the uh, the pit box, as yeah. it were. I think yeah. he's 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 doing a lot of a lot of burning at the minute because, and it's understandable. Tom Sykes is a world champion. Right. And. and uh, Mr. Superpole, the fastest man in the paddock, developed that bike, was was the Kawasaki team for multiple seasons, right? Yeah, and uh, he's seen Jonathan Ray come into his team and take over. And that's tough for any rider to deal with, and Sykes is no exception. Every rider in this paddock, they've got an ego, and it doesn't matter if you go down to play pool with them, or you go down to play cards with them, or you go down to go for a run with them around a track, they want to win. Every single one of them. And the world champion mentality is even worse than that. Tom Sykes, he has to have that mentality to have had the success that he's had. And it gnaws away inside you. When you look across that box, you've given it everything that you have. And Jonathan Ray's picked up 30, 40 race victories. Whatever it is for Jonathan Ray on that Kawasaki, it must be 45 race victories at this stage. Three world championships on the way to a fourth world championship. That's hard to deal with. And uh, when you've got... The crew that you've had around you for so long, whether it's your crew chief, Marcel, Dwinker, all the mechanics, your brother in that box, it gnaws away on every single one of them. Everyone's competitive here. And for Tom Sykes, I think it's now gotten to the point where he realizes, right, we're past the point of no return now. And I think he wants to move away, go to a different team, go to a different bike and try and just start afresh. 
because he's never winning that team back from Jonathan Ray. And the longer he stays there, is he going to be happy winning one, two, maybe three races a, a season? Is he going to be happy just getting getting his head beaten in every single weekend? Jonathan is really good. We've seen it time and time again at the mind game side of things. He's put pressure on Tom Sykes time and time again. You talked about it earlier on when Jonathan manages the season. He manages the situation better than anyone else in the paddock. And that's what we've seen within that Kawasaki team. That's why I don't believe Tom Sykes will be there next year. The key thing is, who replaces him? Michael Vandermark has been the rider linked with that the whole way through this season. Vandermark's the coming man coming through. Kawasaki, do they want to have two British riders? Probably not. Do, do, um, do fans want to see two British riders on the best bike on the grid? They want to see different nationalities winning races again. That's why Vandermark with two victories already this year on that uh, crest having been a super sport champion come in pole man podium man race victor in world spk over the last four years now he's he's worked his way on to being able to get a kawasaki and uh, you'd imagine if he's offered it that he'll jump on that bike and he's definitely been offered it but it's just a question whether or not the money's right whether or not the work that Yamaha has done gives him enough incentive to stay with Yamaha. I was going to say, does it matter if the money's right? If I'm a it rider, it matters the, if the money's right, Jensen. But does it in a way? Because if I'm in the world superbike, if I'm a world superbike rider, and, and imagine what it would take in the world for that to happen. But just if you can, if I'm, I'm going to have to stand quite a bit away <laughs> from you, Jensen. You're a pretty tall guy. <laughs> but the the bike to be on right now would be the Kawasaki. So if you want to go out there and you want to win races and you want to win championships and you want to be that guy and take things to the next level, that's the bike you need to be on. So if you're a Vandermark, do you sit there and bide your time with Yamaha and and be the loyal rider, or do you take the opportunity to say, well, this is this is the next step in the paddock. This is the next step in my career, and maybe this leads to something else, or maybe this you know sets me up to be the next Jonathan Ryan running, you know, what I will soon become before championships in the World Superbike Paddock. Yeah, I think that uh, if I'm Kawasaki, I want to have the next Jonathan Ray. I want to sure. have the rider that can replace him sure. and uh, learn from him for two years. That could be Vandermark. I think a lot of people thought Toprak was also in line for that. Toprak's English, not quite up to scratch. He's going to spend another couple of years with the Pichetti team learning his craft on a Superbike, but he's definitely a rider that will be there or thereabouts for that KRT ride down the line. I think Vandermark is the writer that makes the most sense. A lot of it comes down to, because you talk about money there, Jensen, and one of the key things is going to be, do you want to earn a base or do you want to earn it in bonuses? Sure. And Kawasaki are in a position where they can go and tell riders, right, we'll pay you X amount and it'll be a very low base amount, but we'll pay you, you know, 50 grand a race, but whatever it is. And you're able just to use that to then earn your money. I remember Mick Doohan always said it, that uh, his base salary was very low for each season that he won his world championships but he had like all in for bonuses on race victories he didn't want a podium bonus he didn't want a pole bonus he didn't want anything other than a race victory bonus because if it came down to the last corner and there was you know half a million dollars on the line that was the best incentive he was going to get to shove it down the inside and i think for a lot of riders it becomes down to whether or not you're willing to to bank on your own success are you willing to bank on your own success going up against Jonathan Ray where you're going to be able to win 10 races a year to make your money? That could be a factor for the likes of Vandermark. He's going to earn good money from Yamaha. And the other thing for him is Yamaha gives him a line to MotoGP. Is it a likely line to MotoGP? Probably not. 
but it gives him a, a progression from Yamaha to get into MotoGP. If he goes to Kawasaki, he has to be picked up by another manufacturer to go to MotoGP. Now, as far as we've seen over the years, Cal Crutchlow, Ben Spees, there's not a lot of Yamaha riders have gone from superbikes to MotoGP. You have to win this championship to go to MotoGP. That's what we saw with the likes of Edwards, Toesland, whoever you want to pick down that list. You know, they all had that opportunity because they won races, won championships. Maybe that's what Vandermark needs to do. The way, the easiest way to win a championship is to be on the best bike on the grid. Sure. Is that a viable door that's even open though? Because, you know, looking at the silly season and, and the rumors that were going around, there was, there was a little bit of talk about Jonathan Ray going over to the GP paddock and that obviously didn't materialize. Yeah, I think it's... And if he can't do it, Steve, uh, then who can? The one thing about it is Jonathan's 31. Are you going to bring a 31-year-old over? Probably not. Are you going to bring over a 26-year-old? You might have a chance to get the opportunity at that age, but it's a slim chance. And are you better off? Like Jonathan Ray held off for a long time. He stayed loyal to Honda for a long time in the hope that he'd get a MotoGP ride out of it. And Jonathan didn't get that despite winning a lot of races here for Honda, being a title contender for Honda. And then he goes to Kawasaki and you're at that age then where it's less and less likely. But it was this time last year that the Suzuki rumors kicked off for Ray and uh, they were a lot, they were, there was a lot to them. And I think that there were opportunities for him to go to MotoGP. It's just a case of whether or not there were good enough opportunities sure. at his age, at this, his stage of his career to be able to make that move. There's very few times where an opportunity presents itself like it did for Troy Bayless to come in year one of, a, of the Ducati project and, and be with the team right the way up. For the likes of Ray, he hasn't had that opportunity. Vandermark, Lowe's, whoever you're looking at, top rack for that next group of younger riders, they need to win this championship to have a chance. And even then, I think MotoGP team managers have shown time and time again that they'll look at Moto2 before they'll look at here. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's unfortunate. Uh, and a rider that's, that's probably getting the back end of that right now is the next one I want to talk about, Marco Melandri. Where is he going to be next year? He's basically riding for free this year, um, probably just making money on his personal sponsorships. Pretty good value for your buck if you're a Ducati, but I can't imagine they're going to keep that around looking at the results that he's put up this season. And unfortunately, racing is always, you know, what have you done for me lately? There's a lot to be said for being an Italian on an Italian bike, though. Yeah. And uh, for Ducati, do they feel that Michael Rubin Rinaldi is experienced enough to jump onto a brand new Ducati V4 and be competitive? Is there more value in having um, Rinaldi, Melandri, Chaz Davis on that Aruba squads to stay together? That's what I would imagine would happen unless... Melandri moves to Yamaha. There's been a lot of talk that GRT, the Super Sport champions from last year, that they'll move up. If that happens, Melandri's definitely been linked to that ride quite a bit. You see him doing a lot of talking with it as well. So Marco Melandri, of course, that link to Yamaha in the past, he is a former race winner for Yamaha, and uh, it wouldn't be a surprise to see him link up with them again, but it would be a surprise to see him link up with the Paddy Yamaha team. But the good thing is, as we said at the top of the show, Jensen, with the regulation changes that we have, the GRT team, the Guandolini team, they can have the exact same spec as that factory Yamaha if they spend the money. It does start making those those more independent teams a lot more attractive to, to let's say, more top-shelf talent. Um, I'll be curious to see. I'll be curious to see where he lands and where he goes. One of the things that uh, is actually quite interesting is, as you said, the top-shelf talent staying with an independent team. Ducati has been linked with having more bikes on the grid next year, including the Milwaukee team. 
which is where Eugene Laverty obviously is at the moment. Laverty's got a good relationship with Gigi Delinia in Ducati Corsa, so obviously raced with Gigi whenever he was on the Aprilia World SNK, right. was a title contender for Gigi. I was going to say, very good results with and Gigi. And then moved on to MotoGP. Gigi always wanted to look out for him in MotoGP as well. There was even talk of moving him onto a Pramac bike at one stage. So, you know, there is those links between Laverty and Ducati that could be enough to smooth the relationship in with the Milwaukee team. Milwaukee, obviously, they're not going to stay with Aprilia for next year. We've seen it time and again through this season that Sean Muir has made pretty pointed remarks about Lorenzo Savadori. And you don't make pointed remarks about an Italian rider when you've got an Italian bike unless you're looking at other options for the next year. They could run a Ducati. The BMW has been the bike that they've been linked with the whole way through this season. They've got a lot of links to the development team behind that bike for next year. So for the Milwaukee team, they'll in all likelihood change bikes for next year. And that could be enough to sort of sway Eugene Laverty to stay with the Milwaukee team because his options for next year, they're dependent on what other people do. They're dependent on if Michael Vandermark moves to Kawasaki, it opens up a slot at the Paddy Yamaha team. Of course, Laverty won races for the Crescent team in 2014. He was a podium man on the Suzuki that year. He's been a teammate of Alex Lowe's already. They worked well together. So all those things could uh, work all together to put them into a chance to be able to put Laverty on a Yamaha or Laverty on a G-Caddy. And we need to have riders like that, riders that have been race winners, title contenders in the past on fast bikes where they're able to win races again because we're at that point now where whether it's Tom Sykes, whether it's Marco Melandri, whether it's Eugene Laverty, where questions start to be asked about where their potential is for the next few years. Are they at the end of their careers where they're tailing off or are they still able to be race winners? When you talk to the riders, obviously, they'll always say that I'm better now than I was five years ago, but they need to have the results to back that up. Sure, sure. I think it's interesting that you bring up the BMW as an option for, for SMR because we know on the production side, BMW is very, very, very likely to be showing a brand new superbike, uh, probably at uh, Intermont this year, maybe at ICMA, but we've already seen spy photos. There's talk of it having a counter-rotating crankshaft. There's talk of it having uh, next-level electronics. Uh, um, that bike is ready to take its next step in the evolution, and BMW doesn't muck around. Uh, it could be a very potent weapon, and the way they have their structure set up in terms of giving race support, it opens up some opportunities for some teams to take advantage of BMW Motorrad's racing department and, and services. Yeah, and one of the key things for BMW is next year, if we've got BMWs on the grid, we'll also have 99% certain that Marcus Reiterberger will be riding a BMW with the team that he's with in the Stock 1000 class. BMW have already said that Reidy will be involved with the development of that bike. Peter Hickman, of course, just after winning the Senior TT on a BMW, he's going to be involved with that development. I think Michael Laverty was also being touted as being a rider that could be involved with that. Of course, Laverty, a former MotoGP racer and test rider, BSB front runner. So they're going to have good riders to be able to develop that bike. And if they can get everything lined up, that bike should be competitive. The BMW on the road, Jensen, it's one of the best superbikes out there. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, I've ridden it a few times. I'm actually going to be here at Laguna Seca after the race, riding the HP4 race, which is the all-carbon fiber version, so I'll be very keen to see how that goes. Everything I've read and, and talked to my colleagues about, uh, it's a very potent weapon. Uh, I mean, BMW, they're better known for their boxer twin engines, but they've definitely developed an inline-four package that's very, very good and it seems to be ready to take a next step forward. And I think that's going to put a lot of manufacturers on edge because the last time they did that, they took away a lot of sales from the Japanese brands, and I think they're about to do it again. 
Uh, I'm curious though, Steve, if SMR drops Aprilia, what happens to Aprilia in World Superbike Racing? Do they go away or does someone else pick up that, that contract, so to say? I think they go away. Really? Yeah. To focus on GP, maybe. I, well, I think there's a lot of focus needs to be put on GP, but I think as well as anything else, by not having a GG Delenia that came up through the Superbike ranks running Aprilia any longer, with Romano running that uh, racing division, I think more and more of the focus shifts on to the MotoGP project. I think you're also looking to try and find another suitable team to take on the Aprilia, and it's hard to find one like that. I think that's fair, especially in the conversations I've had with Romano. There does seem to be some frustration, and I know in my conversations with Aprilia's in a whole, they're not looking to update the RC4 anytime soon. Uh, that's probably a bike that's got at least another, well, definitely another year, but maybe probably another two years on the current engine and chassis platform. And um, looking at what's happening in the paddock and what other teams are bringing out new bikes and new development pieces, you know, that doesn't show to me that they are making the investment to keep themselves at the front of the stick. Now, on the production side, RC4 is one of the best super bikes you can go out and buy. On the racing side, though, it's getting rather long in the tooth, and if you're not putting the resources into it to keep it updated, you're going to have a fall off in the results, which is kind of what we've seen. Yeah, and I think it's easy to look at racing over the years. Whoever has the newest, latest, greatest superbike or super sport bike always does the winning. That's why, like, we're here, Laguna. We've got we don't have the world super sports out there, but we've got the Moto America super sport machines out here. Nearly every single one of them is Norsex. It's because that's the bike to be on. That's the newest super sport bike. When Aprilia came out with the RSV4, that was the bike to be on because it was the newest bike at the time. And that's been the, the story over the years for a lot of the winners in World SBK. If you want to win, you have to just have that new development cycle coming through. Aprilia haven't had that for a few years, and that's why it's more and more of a struggle for them. But I think that uh, if they could find the right team to run that bike, you could have good results on it. But you need to have the right team, the right rider, and the stars need to align and I don't see that happening for them next year. Hmm, very interesting. I'll be very curious to see if that comes true. I think it's a disappointment. I, I like seeing Aprilia in World Superbike Racing. I hope they stick around, but um, the the businessman in me is having a hard time making that argument. Yeah, and I think I'd be the same. I, nobody wants to see a, a manufacturer like Aprilia not on the grid, And but you also don't want to see it where it's with the wrong team just to be out there. Sure. You want to see it where they're actually able to be competitive. And... The, I think the Milwaukee Aprilia team can make it work, but it just comes down to whether or not they'll put the resources into it for next year or whether they think after two years, maybe being on a BMW, maybe being on a Ducati gives them a better opportunity to win. That team, Sean Muir sets it up so that they win races. He's not tied to any manufacturer. He won British championships on a Yamaha. He came here on a BMW. He switched to an Aprilia. He makes his changes based on what's best for his team and uh, that's why they've changed bikes, they've changed riders over the years. Let's look a little bit outside of the paddock. You, you already mentioned Sandro Cortese, but are there any other riders coming in from either MotoGP, Moto2, Supersport, Moto America, BSB that we could see in the World Superbike paddock next year? I think there's quite a lot of potential for whether it's Domi Agador. He's been linked with a few rides. Alvaro Bautista has been linked with rides, but Bautista's shown time and again that he wants to stay as a Grand Prix rider. He'll earn more money from his personal sponsors as a Grand Prix rider than he would as a Superbike rider, and that's been one of the driving forces for keeping him at uh, the Grand Prix level over the last few years. But I think if you look at uh, the likes of Agatha, the likes of Scott Redding has now said that he'd uh, 
he'd evaluate the possibility of coming to World Superbikes. Huh. I think uh, in the past he's been very disparaging about uh, taking the switch to a superbike. But uh, for Reading, the lack of options can uh, sometimes clear your mind. And uh, if you want to be on, a, if you want to ride a fast bike, this is the only championship that's going to give them that opportunity. So it'd be interesting to see if teams are interested in taking Scott Redding. Then when you look at the other end of the spectrum, you've seen Bradley Smith has come out and said, if I'm not on a MotoGP bike, I'm not on the grid. So he doesn't want to come here and race on a superbike. And uh, he says that he spent his whole year, his whole career learning and understanding how to get the most out of a prototype bike. And uh, coming onto a superbike isn't something that interests him. Yeah, but I think that's, that's an interesting tale of two different riders, right? I think Bradley Smith has a lot more options in his future just in terms of his development potential, his, his ability to market himself as a development rider, as an R&D rider, someone that really understands the mechanics of um, prototype machines, MotoGP Moto bikes, and, and more importantly, is able to communicate that effectively back to a team and a, and a crew. Um, and there's, you know, there's, there's no shortage of brands that are, that are looking for that. Aprilia is looking for that. KTM is looking for that. I mean, any of the, the big manufacturers, Honda, Yamaha, Ducati, they can all take value in having a rider like that. So he's got a lot more options where I look at Scott Redding. Where are you going to go? You're not going to MotoGP. We know that. You're probably not going back to Moto2. So what else is there? BSB? I think I think that's a I think he's a victim of his options. Where yeah. the only option maybe really is this is this paddock for World Superbike. And the options that he'll have could be thin on the ground. Yeah. He, he has of course worked with Chris Pike, who's the new operations manager for Honda Europe in their superbike program. So he does have that relationship from Chris was his crew chief at Mark VDS in 2015. But is Chris going to look to bring him into the Red Bull Honda team? When you ask Chris about him, he always says that Scott's tons of talent and it's just trying to unlock that potential. So maybe Chris Pike does see something there that he'll be interested to try and put him on to a superbike for next year. There could be, you know, a second Triple M racing Honda. There could be just to have additional Hondas on the grid next year. You could have something like that. So maybe that's where Scott then becomes a little bit more appealing to a team. Uh, Steve, wrapping things up, just give me... Um Give me one or two predictions for for what could happen in the second half of this season. What were you? What, what bets are you willing to make? I'm willing to bet Jonathan Ray is going to win another race. <laughs> um, I've already said to you, there's fifty dollars there on Sykes keeping his ride. Yeah. Um, as I said, everything about what we've seen over the last week while has been that uh, Sykes is seems to be talking his way away from that Kawasaki. So that's something that's going to be interesting. I think. Other than that, we need to to see when Ducati win again. They will win again this year. It's just a case of how many of their riders will win a race. Don't sleep on Michael Ruben Rinaldi winning a race because he's been able to get a lot from that package right from the start of his World SBK career. He gets to the end of the season, maybe he tries something. Um, other than that, Aprilia should get a podium. Honda should get a podium. Uh, well, Steve, I think that's it for now. The the session's on. I kind of want to watch how the bikes go around, but thank you very much for for joining me today and talking about a little World Superbike action. We certainly appreciate all your insights and all the hard work you do behind the scenes for the podcast, uh, rallying the troops and waking us up on what's You really think you're going to get this $50 for the Sykes bet, don't you? I don't know. <laughs> um, let's say um, In-N-Out Burgers are on me. Oh, I'd be happy enough with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. For you, dear listener, thank you for joining us. If you do enjoy the show, we hope that you will rate it on whatever podcasting platform you 
happen to listen to us on, be sure to follow us on social media, uh, facebook.com slash just let the let the herd of bikes go by. Facebook.com slash Paddock Pass Podcast and on Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod. I'm Jensen Beeler. This is Stephen English saying goodbye. Yeah, we just need to pass these couple of cables, but yeah, just a few minutes. If you don't like, yeah, no worries, man. Thanks. Get yourself stuck in.